Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the 200th episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, Matt Kelly and Tom Fox take a look at the new whistleblower legislation, which is part of the Bank Secrecy Act, dealing with anti-money laundering issues. It's a fascinating new law. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. We are going to geek out today on a potential new piece of legislation that is before Congress. The formal title is the Department of Defense Authorization Bill, uh, but it includes an Anti-Money Laundering Act provision, which would establish a whistleblower reward program at uh, FinCEN. So, Matt, um, could you give us a little background? Uh, You could probably skip over the Defense Authorization Bill unless you really want to geek out. And talk to us about what you saw about this uh, reform to help combat money laundering. Yeah, sure. So uh, this is the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, which inevitably we are going to wind up uh, abbreviating as AMLA. Um, AMLA has been folded into this defense spending bill, which we should get back to maybe at the end of this podcast about whether that bill is actually going to pass, because if it does or doesn't pass, AMLA does or does not pass. But right now it seems like AMLA is going to pass because that bill probably will pass. And as you said, Tom, it is a far-reaching bill for compliance officers in two respects. Number one, it will require the owners of shell companies, of all companies in the United States, to report their ultimate owners to the Treasury Department and FinCEN. So all the shell companies out there that are hiding under opaque ownership – Uh, to do things like money laundering or tax evasion or fraud, those owners are going to wind up known to FinCEN and the Treasury Department. And I have some questions about AML compliance and enforcement and your thinking around how your third parties, who may be shell companies, how that might change if this law comes to pass. So that's one thing. But, Tom, the more interesting thing for compliance officers, I think, is that AMLA also now establishes this whistleblower awards program, rewards program, much like the Securities and Exchange whistleblower program, where if you bring original information to the Treasury or Justice Department that results in a monetary penalty against somebody somewhere of more than a million dollars, you, the whistleblower, could be eligible for a reward up to 30% of that settlement total. So it's a lot like the SEC whistleblower program in that respect. Where it is not like the program and where this is get, is, gets interesting is if you closely read Section 6314 of AMLA, it suggests that any employee can be a whistleblower, including compliance, auditor, uh, compliance officers or corporate internal auditors, who come across misconduct as a routine part of your job, you could still take that to FinCEN and still apply for a uh, whistleblower reward. It does not say 
compliance and internal audit are a separate category. We need to give that separate thought, which is how the SEC treats whistleblower considerations around compliance officers and internal auditors. It's not unheard of in the SEC program, but it's rare. Here in the Treasury Department's proposed program, if you read the statute, it seems to define a whistleblower employee and coming across uh, misconduct allegations as part of your job. It defines that very broadly. And I'm trying to say to myself, I'm trying to figure out a way. It's like, no, it's not like compliance officers couldn't actually turn around and dime out their own companies and collect a whistleblower reward. Could they? But I'm hard-pressed to figure that out, how that is, because when I read the statute, I don't see that in there. And so I'm, that's what's really intriguing to me. Does, um, well, first of all, we do have to give a, a nod of the hat to Conspiracy Matt um, <laughs> for coming out and, and believing that uh, compliance officers uh, would rat out their own companies without giving them the chance. But I guess, Matt, the, the thing I uh, concern I have is a, a compliance officer, whether it be chief or otherwise, does uncover something, does bring it to the attention of management, and then uh, is either retaliated against or is frustrated in um, remedying or remediating the situation. I think they should have the full authority to go to FinCEN at that point. They should. And under the SEC whistleblower program, that is the case. Uh, If you are in that gatekeeper class of a compliance officer or a corporate auditor or maybe like a VP of regulatory affairs or a general counsel or something like that, if you come across misconduct, you should first, according to SEC rules, attempt to run that through your internal channels and get it addressed internally. And then if the company does not take any action or if it retaliates against you, then you have much more freedom to go to the SEC and collect a whistleblower reward if it turns out that you're correct and there's a monetary settlement and you apply for an award and you get it. And it's a long, drawn-out process. But there is a process. But compliance and internal audit people and other gatekeepers, it is a special process for you to claim a reward under the SEC program. When you read the AMLA whistleblower program, that special distinction That isn't there. That just says if you come across information as part of your job duties, you can go and take it to FinCEN right away, and you are now eligible potentially for a whistleblower reward. It doesn't say there's a special class of gatekeepers and you should bring it up internally first, and then if you don't, then you can bring it in. None of that is there in the AMLA program. It's So I think common sense and most compliance officers would say, well, of course, I'm going to try and bring it up internally first. That's what I'm here for. That's what I do. And I applaud that. And I think that's what be. But if you read the language of this proposed legislation, it's not that way. It just says a whistleblower is any person who comes across information as part of their duties, period. So there are some... Uh, there are there's a section which uh, denotes whistleblowers who are ineligible for award, and there are three general categories, and I don't think we would have a problem with those. But I guess those, and I'll just uh, say what they are. No, number one, the whistleblower is convicted of a criminal violation related to the action uh, for which he could receive money. In other words, he was part of the, the illegal action. Two, the whistleblower fails to submit information to Treasury or Justice in the form required. And number three that the whistleblower was either an employee uh, or officer of Treasury or Justice 
or a other law enforcement agency, and they acquired the information acting in the normal course of their duties. So it's clear Congress thought about who should be ineligible for an award. And if Congress has made mm-hmm. this decision and clearly have a carve out of three different classes, can we just assume they have made the policy decision that we want to move forward and allow compliance officers, uh, internal auditors, and perhaps even uh, lawyers in the general counsel office up to the general counsel uh, be whistleblowers under this? I mean, you could make that argument. You could make that assumption. And so what I started to do was I went and I looked at the statutory language of the Dodd-Frank Act and the whistleblower program established for the SEC under that law. And I compared what does Dodd-Frank say and what does AMLA say. Now, when Dodd-Frank defines a whistleblower, uh, it is any whistleblower, any individual who provides information about a securities law violation to the commission, and this is the important part here, in a manner established by rule or regulation by the commission. So Dodd-Frank gave the SEC power to come up with rules that make sense for how you would want a whistleblower program to work, such as let's have an SEC rule that compliance officers first need to try to use the actual internal compliance program. But when you read the text of the AMLA whistleblower protection uh, program, um, there, that language about in a manner established by rule or regulation, like by FinCEN or the Treasury Department, there is no sentence in there like that. So Dodd-Frank, they clearly did think about we should give the SEC some discretion to fine-tune who is or isn't eligible for a whistleblower uh, award. And in the AMLA, there isn't any language along those lines saying let's let FinCEN make some rules to fine-tune that. Maybe FinCEN will try to do that anyways. Uh, Maybe somebody could challenge that in court. Um, maybe some compliance officer will be especially shameless, find out about some money laundering misconduct, not report it, take it directly to FinCEN and get rejected. And then maybe the compliance officer will try and litigate that point. Say, no, 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 you didn't say that I'm ineligible. There's no rule about it. So I'm screwing over my own company to try and get a reward, but that's legal. So let me do it. I could see that sort of uh, situation coming up and lurching into the courts. Um, but you're right that, I mean, clearly lawmakers have thought about this. And so when I look at the two whistleblower programs and the relevant definitions of whistleblowers, like there's a lot more wide interpretation in the AMLA whistleblower reward program that I guess can encompass compliance officers and auditors and lawyers and anybody else. Um, you don't have to take it in through uh, the internal channels. At, at least that's my reading of the statute. There's nothing there that says anything along those lines. Change the focus just a little bit. Um, I found that the statute or the drafters of the statute really uh, had incorporated many of the critiques of other whistleblower laws, specifically um Sarbanes-Oxley, and of course, Dodd-Frank, and even the Federal Claims Act whistleblower statute, because they detailed specific protection for the uh, whistleblower in terms of what a company cannot do as a contributing factor to terminate them. And uh, they had some great lines in here, terminal proximity, the falsity of an employee's explanation for adverse action taken, lying, in other words, inconsistent application of an employer's policies, 
my favorite, shifting explanations for its actions, i.e. when they do a mm-hmm. uh, written uh, analysis of the employee after they've been terminated, and then they use that as a basis for the termination. Uh, antagonism towards the whistleblower's protected activity and even a change in the employer's attitude. It seems to me that they have uh, took testimony and evidence of things that were done to uh, whistleblowers in retaliation, even if it was more subtle uh, as well. So I saw a lot of good protections for the whistleblowers built in. I agree with all of that. And there is another important distinction in AMLA that I think people should perk their ears up to is uh, if you remember under the Dodd-Frank Act, there was a language flaw that basically uh, people assumed and the SEC put forth a rule that said you could claim anti-retaliation protections even if you only bring your complaint to the internal compliance function. Now, that's not in the Dodd-Frank statute, and that got taken to court, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which actually said no. If you want to claim Dodd-Frank whistleblower protections, you must first report to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which then led to a flood of people bringing their tips to the SEC. Um, so there is that is addressed in the AMLA whistleblower awards program, where they say uh, a whistleblower can claim these retaliation protections when they report to the Justice Department, the Treasury Department, or your employer, which would mean if you take these uh, questions and suspicions to your internal compliance program, you have now brought it up and now you can claim these whistleblower protections, uh, anti-retaliation protections, and isn't everything great. But Tom, all of what you said and all of what I just mentioned here about um, reporting internally and still getting anti-retaliation protections, that all tells me that clearly the authors of AMLA put a lot of thought into whistleblower protections and whistleblower eligibility and the rewards. So I can't believe that they put in all sorts of thought around these issues, but then created this other gigantic mistake of saying, or, oh yeah, and we forgot that compliance officers shouldn't be eligible. You know, they, they're, they're a separate class. They're gatekeepers. We have to give that some thought. There's none of that in AMLA. So they got everything else right, and they were very thoughtful there, but then they had a thoughtless moment about such an important issue like this. I find that very hard to believe, which leads me to think, no, this is what they wanted. They actually did want that compliance and internal audit and other gatekeepers. You can be whistleblowers to FinCEN as soon as you want. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't like the implications of it, but I'm hard-pressed to come up with any other interpretation of this statute right now. Well, first of all, I don't think there are too many Harry Markopolises in the compliance arena. But uh, I guess, Matt, that uh, as I read through this in preparation for our podcast and after listening, uh, I feel even more strongly that that you're absolutely right. This is what Congress intended and that they have made a policy decision um, that they want to have a wide variety of gatekeepers eligible because they believe that gatekeepers come in, that things may, um, perhaps things may change. Yeah, but is that a good idea? I mean, do you think it's a good idea? I don't think it's a bad idea. I, I don't know. I, I fear that this will create a potential conflict of interest for compliance and auditors, um, internal auditors, if they come up with some substantial evidence of you know, really big misconduct where they could get a considerable 
payout, frankly, uh, if they're going to have a financial incentive not to push a issue through the compliance program, like which is their job. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't like the, the tension that creates the, the, the conflicting interests. And I trust most compliance officers would want to do the right thing. But as soon as you offer the temptation of a lot of money, you know, it's funny how people struggle a bit more with doing the right thing. So I, I can't say I'm comfortable with this. Well, Matt, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I wanted to maybe say a few words and get your thoughts on uh, Paul Sarbanes, who died today. And in many ways, yes. uh, certainly my uh, compliance career, I think, is attributable in large part to Sarbanes and his partner uh, in the House of Representatives who created uh, Sarbanes-Oxley in the um, aftermath of Enron and, and WorldCom Uh, He was a senator from Maryland. He started in the House of Representatives and actually helped draft the first uh, uh, article of impeachment against Nixon. Uh, He was in the House that long ago. And um, I just wanted to acknowledge him. He he certainly, uh, I don't want to say a a stealth figure, but he he kept uh, in the background. Uh, But this work he did with Sarbanes-Oxley, I think, uh, led us down a road to uh, many uh, increases in... um, Compliance and corporate governance, and I wanted to maybe get a few of your thoughts on Paul Sarbanes. Uh, I would agree with all of that. I am not that familiar with all the rest of Paul Sarbanes' other work. I did not know he was involved with the Nixon impeachments. Um, but uh, from what I have read, uh, he was a well-respected senator in Maryland who did right by his constituents for many, many years. Uh, but Tom, you're absolutely right. If it were not for Paul Sarbanes who was head of the Senate Banking Committee in the early 2000s, and Michael Oxley, who was chair of the House Financial Services Committee at that time. Uh, If it were not for the two of them crafting the Sarbanes-Oxley bill, uh, a whole lot of us here would have very different career arcs, I am sure. But, um, you know, they really, Sox was one of the first attempts to at the federal level, assign real accountability for the accuracy of financial statements uh, to the board of directors and to senior executives. And people always like to complain, well, socks, you know, did it work? Did it not work? Didn't it cost a fortune? All this other stuff. Hold on. Sarbanes-Oxley was passed with the specific intention and the objective of holding corporate officers more accountable for the financial statements that their companies produced to reduce the risk of financial restatements and make financial statements more reliable. That was it. It wasn't there to prevent the financial crisis, which was about very different things. It wasn't there to uh, be cheap and easy to do. Sox was just there to make corporate financial statements more reliable and make financial restatements less likely. That is what happened. So Sox has worked. And we can thank Paul Sarbanes and Mike Oxley, who also he passed away several years ago now. Uh, we can thank those two for getting us where we are here today. You know, Matt, that, that's a great point that Sarbanes-Oxley uh, was uh, written to solve a specific problem that was rampant in the late 90s in the first part of uh, this century. And that other legislation may have built upon that. And certainly uh, Dodd-Frank could probably claim that. Uh, interestingly, our colleague Jonathan Marks says uh, or, or uh, articulates that 
Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley built on the internal controls provision of uh, the FCPA as part of its um, uh, legislative remit. But it's, uh, it really is a great, uh, important piece of legislation. And uh, as you said, uh, many of us, uh, I think a large part of our professional career uh, runs through Sarbanes-Oxley. Indeed. Well, Matt, uh, I look forward to seeing what next week brings us. All right. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Also, check out the show notes where I have additional resources available in forms of blog posts written by Matt or myself. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.